Coming to you from the foothills of Los Angeles, it's time for In My Voice with actress, voiceover artist, director, and coach, Kathy Grable. With over 20 years behind the mic, Kathy brings you a unique perspective of working VO actors whose voices you'll know, but their stories you probably don't. Now sit back and enjoy In My Voice. Today, I have the honor of talking to Carla Hall, a well-known journalist who's been with the Washington Post and now sits on the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times. Her journey goes full circle from writer to actor to journalist and back to being on camera and voiceover talent. Give a listen. Let's start with, you know, where you're from. Born and raised in Chicago and enjoyed growing up there. When you're little, you don't care about the cold. Um, And then I, um, after I graduated from high school, I went to school on the East Coast. I went to Harvard, spent four years in the Boston area in Cambridge, right outside Boston. And then I went to Washington and I worked at the Washington Post for a number of years. Then I came out here and worked on a TV show as a script consultant and tried to get, actually, to tell you the truth, most of my acting work was done in Washington, D.C. By the time I got out here, I did literally one acting gig, and then I went into trying to be a script writer, which I was never very successful at. Well, it's it's interesting because I had started to, I, I thought when I was preparing this a bit, although I was like, one reason I thought, you know, Carla, we've got to do, have you on the podcast, partly because I feel like every time we have conversation, it's like, this would be a really great podcast because yeah. it's, <laughs> it's always <laughs> yeah. very thoughtful. And um, it, I just think about, you know, when we talk, it just spurs creative ideas and I think about our conversations afterwards. So it's really fun. But I thought I could actually say she went to Harvard, you know, but I thought I'll let her her bring that up. But what was your major at Harvard? Oh, I majored in history of science. Oh, so, really? okay. Yeah, we study how scientific ideas change. But that was that major was pretty good because it let you take a wide variety of things. Well, I, from someone who took physical science for poets and philosophers, uh-huh. I, <laughs> that was the science course for the the theater majors at my college. But I, I was going to say, that, yeah. now, how how um, did you transition into journalism? And I know you also, like you said, did acting roles and are an actor as well. So tell us a little bit about your path and what that entailed. I'd always wanted to be a writer and I'd always done writing and I worked on a school paper at Harvard, not the Crimson. I worked on the Harvard Independent, which was a weekly. And, you know, I'd worked at the school paper in high school. So journalism seemed like the natural path for me. Once I decided I wasn't going to be a scientist, (laughs) I decided that journalism was the natural path. And I I was coming up in an era when newspapers were still flourishing Mm -hmm. and they were hiring like crazy, like hard to believe given the tenor of the times now. But I got a summer internship right after my junior year in college at the Washington Post. Um, And I did well. Uh, I was in the style section, which is their feature section. And I had a ball. 
But so I, I did that and I did that for um, quite a while. And then I, I still wanted to be, I had this desire to be an actress that I had never really indulged because I had all these other, you know, serious things I was mm -hmm. doing, quote unquote. And also, as you know, it's scary to yeah. be an actor, right? Just about the most unreliable, scary form of, of, you know, supporting yourself you could go into until you, you know, hit it big or right. until you're very successful. Um, and, and don't you feel everybody says, oh, go be an actor. That's a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah. my, my parents were like, I, it's, it's funny at, at one point I came out here so I was living in Washington, D.C., and I came out here for a week on like a fact-finding mission. And I'd, I'd managed to make little um, contacts here and there. And I had a friend who had a friend, that sort of thing. Uh, so I was pretty well sourced. And I came out here to talk to some producers and that sort of thing. And I remember I had this conversation with my parents and they were just so distraught that I was doing this and trying to pursue it. And I said, well, I just want to go out to L.A. and talk to people. And they're like, well, this this field is so hard and it's like going off to try and be an NBA player. And I said to my father, I said, why can't someone just say, good luck? Maybe you'll make it. Yeah. And there was this pause. And he said, good luck. Maybe you'll make it. Oh, really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I actually came out here and I. I managed to get an audition for a daytime syndicated show that's no longer on the air. It was called Superior Court. Oh, and it was yeah. half hour. And they did shows about you know, courtroom dramas, which they kind of made up, but they were sort of based on real things. But, you know, ma mainly they were made up. I had a very good friend who was a writer for the show. She <laughs> got me the audition. And the last day I was in LA on my fact-finding mission, they called and offered me um, a one day job. That's so, cool. and I was, I, I thought, oh my God, I've made it in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I hadn't made it in Hollywood. Um, but I did the job. I played a lawyer on the show. I had a great time. So that's super, Carla. You know, we've never talked about this, but do you know how I got my SAG card? No, how? On a show called Guilty or Innocent. Oh my God. <laughs> How did I miss that? <laughs> I think it was Lee Strobeck or something. Yeah. Anyway, it was just, that's very funny that those were our first, first and gigs. I, I don't have a SAG card. At the time when I was coming up, there was SAG and there was AFTRA. I, I didn't have, every job I did, I was taft lead into. <laughs> I just, so, <laughs> it shows you how few jobs I did, but, but I never had to buy the cards. Um, oh, that's, Yeah. And in fact, I did a play in DC at um, Arena Stage, which mm -hmm. is a regional theater. It's an equity theater. And I, for some reason, I was allowed to do that without having, well, it's hard to get into actor's equity. You mm -hmm. had to work, what, 50 weeks, I think. Right, right. Um, and I worked like nine weeks on this, <laughs> or six or seven on yeah. this uh, show. So, but I did little things around DC and I, I managed to get auditions here and there. And I uh, did, you know, small little experimental theater. And, um, and then I, 
I came out here when uh, there was a show on called Capital News, and it was oh, yeah. produced and executive produced by David Belch, who you know has did Deadwood and did mm -hmm. NYPD Blue. Later, he did those right. things. Uh, but Capital News was a show about a fictitious newsroom in Washington, D.C. Lloyd Bridges, remember him? Oh, yeah. He played the editor. And um, the, the co-executive producer once said, nobody wears a suit like Lloyd Bridges. I mean, he's <laughs> square-shouldered yeah, and yeah. handsome, sweetest, nicest man. He's, he's since passed away. Um, but I went to work. David hired me to um, to be a script consultant on that okay. show. I, I managed to write a little bit on the show. I got like a story credit on one of the episodes. And I have a tiny part in the pilot as a disgruntled newsroom librarian. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was you know, I always think a journalist at like Washington Post or LA Times, which you're with, sounds so yes. glamorous. And, you know, that there's so many great movies and TV shows where it's like Girl Friday, you know, and I'm going to work <laughs> <in> that, <laughs> and that whole thing. But um, take us through what a day like in the life of a journalist would be. And also tell us a little bit about what stories you cover. You have certain um, areas that you specialize in, correct? I do, I do. When I first got to the paper, I was actually a Metro reporter and I covered, I was general assignment, which is what I like. You don't have a beat, you just get to roam around. I was general assignment and I covered LA. And I, I think the, um, uh, the first year I was there, <laughs> there were these wildfires. What a shock. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. There was like a big fire in Altadena. And then there was a huge fire in Malibu. And I really wanted to go cover it, which is so hilarious because today, well, I don't have to cover fires because of, because now I'm on the editorial board, but I mean, you couldn't like drag me to a fire today. <laughs> I'm just like been there, done that. It's right in the ass. And so, um, but I was young and wanted to go. And I remember I called my editor and said, where do you want me to go? Where in Malibu should I go? And he was like, um, okay. And anyway, so I went up and covered that, helped cover that fire. They had like, you know, 20 people covering it. And it was, it was so, it was actually fun. You know, I, I was with some of these firefighters, like these fire officials who were driving me around. And I was with them when they got this harried dispatch over their radio from some firefighter going, well, it just jumped the line at Topanga Canyon. I don't know what we're gonna do. And wow. I was like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, and, and they, they, they put it out. I mean, they got, they got it under control, uh, but you could hear how serious and worried the firefighter was on yeah. the phone, on the radio. It was, it was totally cool. I just felt so in the city. Yeah. Um, and then a few months after that, well, I, like everybody else in the city of LA, was awakened at 4.31 in the morning by the Northridge earthquake. Oh, yeah. So I went and covered that, and we continued to cover that for a few weeks. And then... 
about six months later, barely more like five months later, I live in Brentwood and I was at the paper and my editor said, some, there's someone murdered. There were a couple of people murdered near in Brentwood. And, you know, maybe you want to go and take a look at that. And maybe you want to go and talk to some people at the restaurant where the woman had been. And of course we know what that was. Yeah. And that was of course the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. And I ended up doing a huge profile on Ron Goldman, who had unbeknownst to me lived around the corner for me. Um, I got to meet his roommates and talk to people he knew such a tragic story. Um, He seemed to be nothing but a really nice young man, you know, trying to get himself together. Um, I, I mean, trying to, you know, work on his career and right. that sort of thing. So it was, there were a lot of different things that went on. And eventually I, over the years, I got involved with covering uh, the investigation into Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was running for governor the first right. time in the recall election. And there were all these allegations of him sexually harassing and assaulting women. I worked on that, which was an incredible experience. And I learned a lot. I was working with two other more experienced investigative reporters, and I learned a lot about reporting from them. So it wasn't exactly glamorous, but there's a lot of going to people's houses and knocking on doors, especially during that investigation, calling people at night when they're home to see if they would talk to you. There's a lot of begging people to talk to you. It it can be a lot of work, but I I did that. And then after a while, what I decided to do was I wanted to do something different. So there was an opening on the editorial board of the paper. The editorial board is comprised of the people who write the editorials in the paper. And those, they are unsigned because they are supposed to represent the opinion of the paper as a kind of citizen of the city and the county and the state. So I write about, I write things where I tell people what to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and that's hard in a different way because you do a lot of the same reporting. You call people on the phone, you talk to them. Um, back before the pandemic, you go and interview people in person. Uh, but then you have to figure out what you want to say and you want to be as sharp and focused as possible. We, we try to avoid, although it's very hard, writing editorials where you say, we think the city would be, it would be good if the city did this. On the other hand, we can understand if they wanted to do that. No, you try to say the city should do this, but you have to be honest about it. I want to go back a little bit and then and then talk about that a bit more. But it's so interesting when you know someone pretty well and, you know, you've gotten to know. It's so fun how we've not only worked together, but developed a friendship, I feel. And um, 
so I didn't realize that we came to LA around the same time because I wasn't here very long when the Northridge earthquake happened as well. And I was here through the OJ. I remember those happening very quickly. Yeah, they did. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, like it just seemed like every other week there, it, it was a very pivotal time in a lot of ways, but I was dating Greg because there had been a small earthquake in Santa Monica the week before, and he lived on the west side. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I was in Toluca Lake. This is the big one. If it's it's that big, it's, you know, and it was really bad in the valley. And um, I'd had opening night of a show the night before, and I had flowers and they you know, falling up. There was a lot that happened. The light above me. I mean, you know, just sit there going, "Oh my gosh, your first big earthquake!" Wow. They, that you go that that didn't pop and you know crash. I was hanging by one <laughs> one little wire and all this wow. stuff. But I stepped in that water, and someone told me later. I always keep shoes by my bed. If any of you haven't been through an earthquake, you do that because they said it could have been broken glass. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. But I had a voiceover job. And so there's wires down. I mean, it was Northridge earthquake was really bad. And um, so I was able to call Greg before the lines got cut. He was on his way over. He's like, oh, I didn't really even wake up. It wasn't that bad where he was, but he was pretty far away. He gets there through paralyzed everything. I said, I've got to get to my session. He's like, there is no, it's in Burbank. There is absolutely no <laughs> way. There's no electricity. I'm like, you never know. You never know. I mean, I couldn't get a hold of my agent. <laughs> so I show up at this sound studio. Of course, you know, there's no electricity. I mean, it's just silly. You know, when you say that young, come come to the, you know, I'll go do the fire. I'll do, you know? So it's just so funny. My agent later was like, you're kidding me. You showed up. And I'm like, well, you know, I didn't know. I couldn't get I'm very it. impressed. Yeah. And, and you couldn't get through on the phone, right? Is that No, it? I couldn't get through yeah. to my agent or the studio. And there were lines down and everything. Like Greg's like, this is really dangerous. But I kept thinking we have rubber tires and we'll, <laughs> we'll watch so I think I think he drove me finally because he got, you know, he got across town. But I mean, everything in my kitchen had come out of the, you know, out wow. of the cupboard. Yeah. I mean, it was really bad. One of the um the places across the street from where I lived had collapsed, you know, into the parking garage. Wow. And where were you living? Was, uh in Toluca Lake, but oh, on, okay. on the edge by Burbank. And there was one one condo that did that. So yeah, that had the yellow tape and everything afterwards, but you know, I was just, yeah, it was funny. But, and also after OJ, I really feel like a lot of LA changed there. That was very pivotal and yes. such a tragic, but there was, I felt like a bit of a loss of innocence in the city somewhat as mm. well. I don't, I don't know quite how to put my finger on it, well, but. It was a very, um, it was a very jarring um, experience. I mean, the, the the murders were tragic, of course, but I think the whole idea of the trial of this incredibly well-known football former yeah. football star turned, you know, B movie actor, um, and. The fact that it was on TV, the fact yeah. that it went on forever. Um, I mean, I remember the DNA expert was on the stand for like eight days or something. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't. It, it was everything about it was outsized. Yes, the, 
the, the star power of the defendant, the star power of the legal team, um, the racism mm -hmm. of the of Mark Furman and those cops, um, the the sort of muted um, nature of the judge. I mean, it was just such a show, and I think we'd just never been through anything like that. The city, right. hadn't, in in some ways, the country hadn't. Right. Um, that like sense of of at the end where people in the black community are screaming and shouting and cheering when he's acquitted and people in the white community were sitting there sobbing and um it was such a it was it was so it, it felt like the city was so divided and in some ways traumatized by the whole thing. Well, and I, wasn't it one of the first cases where they allowed the cameras in the courtroom or something, if not the first one? So we weren't used to being able to see some of that. Well, I, there were still, there have been cameras in courtrooms before that. I mean, Court TV right. was, was on the air at the time and Court TV was all about going into the courtroom mm -hmm. with cameras. I think it's more that we'd never seen a trial like right. this yeah, that's on camera. True. And there are a lot of people who felt that the trial went on as long as it did, the attorneys talked as long as they did because of the cameras. And, and there was a kind of backlash after that. And a lot of cameras, a lot, a, a lot of court trials do not allow cameras anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also just growing up, I just remember OJ was just such a hero, you know, like I mean, you just, I remember yeah. the high speed chase, everything about it. You were just like, no, that can't be, you know, like we just almost couldn't believe it's, that was part it, of it. It was, it was hard to believe. And I live in Brentwood. I live in Brentwood now. I lived in Brentwood then. I mean, when the high speed chase was going on, um, I mean, I remember being in the newsroom when early in the morning, in the downtown newsroom when we were still, the LA Times was still downtown in its historic downtown mm -hmm. building. Uh, the, one of the police commanders was gave a news conference like about 1130 that morning. We were all standing around the newsroom watching these, this TV. And he said, we have put out a warrant for OJ Simpson's arrest, and which we all knew that was coming. We right, knew right. obviously he was going to be arrested. It was getting obvious he was going to be arrested. And then he said, Mr. Simpson was about to, was supposed to show up and turn himself in, but he did not show up. And at this moment, he is a fugitive from justice or whatever, or we have no idea where he is and he's a fugitive. And there was this roar in the newsroom. We were like, oh, yeah. I mean, we couldn't believe it. We just, yeah. everyone at once was like roaring like, oh, and it drowned out whatever else was on the TV. It was just like, you couldn't believe this yeah. was going on in real life. I remember a friend calling me and saying, turn on the TV. You know, it was just, you know, and we were like, no, no, that can't be. And yeah, so interesting. Well, fast forwarding now, I know you said how a newsroom works and all of that, but one of the things I love about your story and also about you, I, 
Carla, is that, you know, you were prepared for opportunity. When I think of your, uh, where you are in voiceover now, when I think of what you're doing on camera and everything, you were prepared for, preparing for an opportunity you didn't know would happen even because we, I remember, um, you know, we were doing sessions and I was doing some coaching and workout groups with you that I, I, I was really curious how you felt you found your voice because I remember a pivotal time and for some reason you would stop yourself sometimes and you take a drink of water or something, which we drink lots of water guys. And for some reason I had this moment in my head, I said, Carla, you found your voice writing, you're a writer, all you have to do is say it because you have that in you. And it, there was this shift and relaxation and conversational. And you emailed me later that night and you said that really clicked with me. And I have to say from oh. then, then on, I felt like it was a whole nother Carla. And, and the thing is, when I say that sometimes to people I work with, they said, it feels like a backhanded compliment, but it isn't because I never know where someone's going to go. Myself as an artist, you never know how far you're going to go with anything. So it's kind of like, there's always this wonderful future and you go, oh my gosh. Yeah. I always say you don't know what you don't know, you know, (laughs) because we're experiencing that. And then I remember you saying that they were going to do a piece on homelessness that you'd written and -hmm. you stepped up and said, well, I could voice it. And then you sent it to me and it was just so wonderful. So anyway, I want you to talk about that a little bit. I, well, it's funny. I have a very precise, vivid memory of my trajectory and voiceover. And I remember once telling somebody when I first started taking voiceover, I was nervous in the car on the way to voiceover and then nervous in the classroom and then nervous in the booth with voiceover too. I was just nervous in the classroom and then nervous in the booth. And then with demo prep, because I already knew you and, and, and everything, I wasn't nervous in the car. I was like a little nervous in the classroom and mostly I was nervous in the booth. Well, and whoever I was telling this story to said, well, that's progress. And I thought, <laughs> it is. And I think I just, I just kept doing it. And there's really something to be said for that, that the more you do something, the more either you're going to get tired of it or whatever, and then walk away, or the more it just becomes something you're doing and you stop being nervous about it, which doesn't mean I'm always not (laughs) nervous, but, but it's just, it's just part of your life or something. And, and I really think you're just kind and that sounds milk toasty, but what I mean is you're very, you're very clever about the way you get people into, uh, into a mood for a piece. Like imagine you're talking to someone about walking off a cliff, you know, or, and I'll think, wow, how did Kathy think that up? Um, <laughs> um, so you're good about that, but then you're also good about, about helping a person sort of shape what, what should come after that and, and how to make it better. So you don't, I don't ever feel like 
uh, mean to anyone. You were just very good at sort of walking people through it. Um, and so I, I credit whatever, to whatever extent <laughs> I've gotten more comfortable, a lot of the credit goes to you. Well, you're very kind, um, but you did the work, you did the work. And also I, I always say, I'm such a believer in the doing of it yes. because it, there's just something about it. It's like, if, you know, if you're going to run a marathon and you haven't run for a while, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's also adjusting so much of the artistic skill set to that. You know, you had the acting, you had the writing, you have, you're such a creative person. And I, I loved, loved that. I, I remember saying, um, well, you know, I love that story, how you said for your birthday, you did a one woman show for yourself and invited everyone. Yeah. And I, I just thought that's such a cool idea. And um, so I really credit you for all that hard work and that it absorbed in there as well. And not even hard work, having fun with it. Because honestly, when I got into voiceover, I thought, gosh, this is more like theater. And it's it's really fun. It doesn't matter what I look like. It's not, for me, I'm not like, oh, I can do it in my pajamas so much. Because I still <laughs> kind of feel like every once in a while I do that. But sometimes I'm in my pajamas with heels on so that I feel like a business woman. Yeah. Yeah, but but it it is freeing about what age or what you know what kind of character you can be a little, you know I'm doing a little corgi dog now you know that's it's fun <laughs> it's like hey that that's voiceover you can do all these different things so um, also I felt like um, so there was the the homeless video and then there were other things that you would say that you had done as well as articles which anybody that read Carla Hall, she's amazing. I love reading your editorials, but um, I also remember the LA times book club where you stepped up to that. And now you're the voice of the LA times book club, correct? I, you know, I was when we did it in person and you, the way the book club would be is you would do um, uh, a video about the author in a darkened theater mm-hmm. with a voiceover and I'd be the voiceover. And then the lights would come up and on my voiceover where I would say, please welcome to the LA Times book club stage, Michael Connolly in conversation with whoever Michael Connolly was in conversation with that night. I can't remember exactly. Uh, Jeffrey Fleischman and which, and by the way, I guess that's the tag, right? The last thing it's always. right. right. I loved doing that. I, I just, I love the tag because I got to be kind of big in a way you don't get to be. Mm-hmm. And I got to be like, like I was commanding the whole room and, and telling, it, it felt like being an announcer at a big gala or a big award show or something, right. even though it was, you know, it was the LA Times book club. I just loved that. That was my favorite part of everything I did. And they all ended the same way. Please welcome to the LA Times Book Club stage, Susan Orlean in conversation with Julia, blanking on Julia's last name, shows how long I've been out of the newsroom. That was, Um, that one so well though. I can still hear you talking about the books burning and sounding like- Oh yeah. And you brought it to, to, uh, you read it. I did. I did. 
And everyone was really, cause I was nervous about it. Like I didn't want to mess it up. Um, even though, I mean, I, I do these for free, but I still wanted to keep doing them. And, and I know that the woman who runs the book club, who's wonderful, she once told me that she was somewhere and a woman that she had met who was a voiceover actor said to her, well, you know, I'd be willing to do voiceovers for you for the book club. And Donna, the woman who runs the book club said, oh, thanks, but that's okay. I have somebody who does them. I thought, whoa. <laughs> you know? Well, they like, do think a lot of you. I have to, because I was fortunate enough, you were kind enough to invite me. Since we've been in the pandemic year, since the book club has gone virtual, um, I did maybe, I did a couple at the very beginning because I had to do the voiceover. I totally forgot about this. I had to do the voiceover and send it in on my iPhone. So I went into my closet, <laughs> did it in my closet. Uh, and also, you know, the quality control for right. Zoom book club is a lot lower than for, you know, in a big auditorium. Right. So I did do several. I'd totally forgotten that. And then they, I think they sort of stopped doing them. I remember going to those, like I, the LA Times, uh, what they would have them at USC, the LA Times. Well, that's the book festival. Yeah. um, Which is a huge, huge thing. And it's probably one of the largest book festivals in the country. We did not do it in person, obviously, this past year. They they hold them in the spring, like April. Mm -hmm. And they did something else. They pushed it to October, still couldn't hold it in person. And then they did something else online. I don't know what they're going to do this year because April is fast approaching and we're still, you know, pretty much locked down. down. Um, So I don't know what's going to happen. They were so wonderful. I would take, I would go you know, before I had kids and then I would take them yeah. and you'd meet the authors and I'd always get signed books. And I love getting signed books. So that's always fun, but all right. So one of the things um, now also there's spectrum one that you appear on. Right. I wondered if we could kind of wrap up with how journalism is now multimedia um, and, and possibly yeah. with the, what you see the future being, because now you can see Carla on Spectrum One talking about some of her articles as well yeah. as other journalists. So, uh, as soon as um, Spectrum One started doing this thing called, got into this arrangement with the LA Times where they did this thing called the LA Times Today, a couple of the producers came to talk to members of the editorial board because they wanted everybody involved. They wanted Metro reporters, calendar reporters, sports reporters, um, everyone involved, and they wanted the editorial board involved. And they came and sat with us in this sofa and uh, in this, you know, office. And I was just like, I'm here. I want to do it. I'll do it. Anything. I will do it. And I told them at the end. And then other people were kind of like, eh, well, you know, it's not what we do. It's not, you know, my comfort zone. For me, it was totally my comfort zone. It was like I've been dying for an opportunity to yeah. turn my writing skills and merge my writing skills with my voiceover and occasionally my acting skills. Um, And I told these producers um, at the end of the meeting, I said, I just want you to know I do voiceovers 
Actually, I was telling them in case they needed somebody to do a voiceover, but they love that. And they actually picked me first to be the first editorial writer who talked their editorial. And it was on one of the foie gras rules that the, the rules about foie gras in the state of California keep going back and forth. It's illegal. No, it's not illegal. It's illegal. No, it's not illegal. And this was one turn of the screw. And I wrote a big editorial about it because I cover animal welfare. I'm against foie gras. The editorial board is against foie gras. It's cruel to ducks and geese. So <laughs> I... Yes. What? I remember this. And so you... Um, <clears throat> I remember I went and met with one of the producers, like a bunch of the producers, and they said, they explained to me how the, the format worked. And I said, okay, so I'll just go there to the studio and I'll just talk one of my editorials. And this guy goes, so you're just going to talk it? You're just going to wing it? You're not going to write it? And I said, well, yeah, I was thinking that. And he goes, um, wow, that's great, but why don't you write it? <laughs> And uh, put it on a teleprompter. And, and I, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe what was going through my mind. Um, because these are, even though I try to simplify them in terms of words and cut them down so they fit two or three minutes, it's still such a weedy, such a wordy, weedy thing. I can't imagine just vamping it. Right. So. I learned how to write those um, and then I started doing them and they've been very welcoming. I must've done, I don't know, over the last year or so, I must've done 10 or 12 um, mm -hmm. and I love doing them. Um, what I generally do is I send them something I've written that I think will appeal to them. I know kind of what they like. They want to be hyper local um, and then they will, my, the producer I usually work with will read it. And if she thinks that she'll pitch it to her bosses as, you know, we'll have, let's have Carla come on and talk about homeless, whatever. Um, and then she'll email me and say, great, it's a go. Um, what day can you do it? And then in the old days when we didn't have a pandemic, right. I would, I would go over our building, our LA Times building is in El Segundo and I would just drive over to the studio and do it there. And then eventually we had a studio in the building anyway. Uh, but it was, it's totally fun. And I love doing it and hope to continue to do it. And I think long winded answer to your question, I think this is the future of the news business, that the news business is more and more digital. Mm -hmm. And although that's fine for reading words and seeing the accompanying photos and accompanying video, because can't put video in the print right. paper, all that is great. But I think in, in as well as that, you're going to have the writer telling you something about what they've been working on mm -hmm. or giving you a little extra or introducing you to one of the, the people in the stories. Um, and I think that's great. I mean, because I like it. I like doing it. I like watching those things myself. This is very much, I think, the future of the media business, the news media business. I think so too. It's, and you know, 
I welcome it in many ways as well, because so often we get pigeonholed in one thing and really artists have so many facets, but also the way to tell a good story. Yes. Good journalism. I mean, the fact that we have video available and that actually could be all of a sudden you click on the video as well as the story. I mean, there's just so many things that are just transforming everything right now. And especially now with this pandemic, it's opened up another world. If we can imagine what it would have been like five years ago, even with the pandemic, how much more insular being at home would have been, I think. I would say one uh, good thing from the pandemic has been that it's forced all my colleagues and me to be on Zoom. And I think that everyone's um, skills at on camera have improved Mm -hmm. as a result of being on Zoom. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's real. I think it's really going to change how we do business, how we commit. Like I said, Definitely. I think I, I would see with my kids, they didn't care what they looked like with FaceTime, that sort of thing. And it, in a way, it's it's done both. It's freed us up to not be as concerned. And yet at the same time, there's a look someone in the eye, shake their hand. Yeah. Part of Zoom that you don't get on FaceTime that I think really ups our skills in a communication level that we maybe wouldn't have had with just FaceTime or just print, you know? So um, there's an interactive quality to it. Yes. I still am going to want a magazine sometimes and I'm still gonna want a newspaper sometimes. So I hope that, that we will all have that. And I love holding a book. I still, you know, subscribe to the LA Times. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As, As everyone should. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I don't I don't want all of that to go away, but I think it does enhance in a way that'll be interesting with this multimedia format. So and really the LA Times I think was one of the first ones on top of that or or early on. We're definitely on top of it now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it took us a while to really go all out and figure out how do we turn ourselves into a digital paper. Mm-hmm. And it's still a work in progress, but it's it's huge. Um, it's it's certainly become a, an entire enterprise in, onto into itself. Unto yeah. itself, yeah. we have digital producers and video producers. And this summer, in the in the wake of the social reckoning after George Floyd's yeah. death, we the L.A. Times wrote actually actually my boss Sewell Chan. Uh, who's the editor of the editorial page, he wrote this incredibly long, like 3,000 word, unbelievably comprehensive editorial that went through all the horrible ways that the LA Times had been racist uh, to Black people, to Latino people, to Asian people. And he went through the evolution of the paper and how it had changed and how long it took to change and talking about things we're doing now to be a more sophisticated paper right now in terms of how we cover communities of color, people of color. And as as you can imagine, when that editorial came out in the paper and online, there was a video that went with the editorial that didn't just, it talked about the editorial and it had sit down interviews with 
uh, Gustavo Ariano, uh, the columnist who's Latino, and Greg Braxton, who's a wonderful calendar writer and, um, uh, and is black, and both of them wonderful writers, very insightful. And they talked about their experiences at the LA Times. And I wrote the voiceover for the video and did it. And there's a lot of FaceTime. So the video shows me, we filmed it in a park uh, in Manhattan Beach, uh, just because the video producers were brilliant and found this park. I did the, the voiceover, I did the narration really. And then at the end, I apologize on behalf of the paper. And I'm actually pretty proud of it. I thought the work, I thought it worked out pretty well. It was wonderful. Um, you sent it to me and I thought it was very insightful and it was it was really well done all the way around. I, I really appreciated it. And I thought it, I thought it was very comprehensive and yet personal. Um, because again, yeah. it was their stories as well. And, it, and, and some of it was really quite shocking. Um, I know. I, I was shocked by some yeah. of the things that but how wonderful that, that you were able to be a part of that healing and, and say, hey, this is what's happened. And as a voiceover person, narrator, I felt very comfortable that day doing it. And I think some of it was because I love being in this park. I, I mean, go figure, just it wasn't this confined booth or anything, or even a kind of confined studio. I like being outside. It just felt contemplative to be outside. They didn't have a teleprompter and I certainly didn't memorize that whole thing. So, but I had the night before I had printed out in like the biggest type I could, like cue cards essentially. Right. And then I got one of the producers to hold up the cue card, like right under the camera, <laughs> like if the camera's here and it worked out okay. Whenever I have someone on, I always like to do a scene with them. This is a commercial we read cold and had some fun. I'm not, we, we can ad lib a little bit, but it's just like, that's in us, you know, we're just going to use yeah. lines a bit more. Yeah. So we aren't mom jeans and sweater vests. We're lipstick and Louboutins and uh, a hint of La Perla. We aren't pretty in pink. We're divine in diamonds. We don't hate the idea of living in a swamp. We just prefer one in Beverly Hills. Sure, we like Snow White. We just think the Wicked Queen is a lot more fun. And with that, <laughs> we'll call it a night. Well, thank you so much for your time, Carla. I feel like we could go on and on, but it's just, it's just been really, really lovely. And oh. thank you. It's my pleasure, Kathy, and I love working with you, and I continue to learn so much every time I'm in your um, workshops. So I, I'm, I'm so glad that we've gotten to be friends as well. Um, I really admire and respect your work. In My Voice is a production of Word Merchants Media and is co-produced by Greg Perkins and Kathy Grable. Engineered and mixed by Alex Bogdasarian. And I'm Brent Huff, your announcer. For more information on this podcast, our scripted podcast, ebooks, private voice coaching, and more, visit KathyGrableStudios.com. Bye.
for now. <laughs>